thank you to KRCL's Board of Trustees, Community Advisory Board, and our Hi-Fi Club members for issuing challenge grants during Fall Radiothon and virtual hugs from all of us here at KRCL for investing in community radio. Now I'm a farmer and I'm digging, 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 digging. Now I'm a farmer and I'm digging, 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 digging. Welcome to Punk Rock Farmer Friday on Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones and in the Zoom space, I'm joined by... It's me, Aldine Strychnine, the Punk Rock Farmer here. And just want to say thank you to everybody who a week ago helped us do big numbers during Radiothon, Al. Oh, goodness, yes. Thank you so much. Um, so key players and new people, it, we had a, it, was, it was wonderful as always. We got our goal. We made a great chunk of money in the hour show that we had. First week was a little iffy. We had never done two Radiothons in a row, but boy, oh, boy. Folks showed up for the last Friday of Radiothon, and really, we felt the love for sure. And if you want to get the updated classic Punk Rock Farmer t-shirt, do it now. I don't think Eric's putting in the order, Al, until Monday. So, folks, you still have time to go online to krcl.org and click that big orange donate button in the corner and pick up your latest Punk Rock Farmer t-shirt. Of course, all the money goes into all of listeners' community radio of Utah, and we get down the road another six months. So, Al, what is on Punk Rock Farmer Friday tonight? We have Sean Peterson with the Association of Gleaning Organizations nationwide. He's gone nationwide, used to be here with the Green Urban Lunchbox, but all over the nation now. Allison Enerson's going to join us for an update on Winter Market, which opens tomorrow. And we have an unusual urban farm report, Al, a conversation we've been trying to get on, and then Radiothon came along, so we've been saving it. Scott Baxter, you remember this conversation? It was super interesting. He had so much to say about the Great Salt Lake and uh, circumnavigating in a homemade kayak. Pretty cool stuff. He took his daughter's boyfriend along with him for safety. Now that's living dangerously out on the lake, I'm telling you. <laughs> we also got Skywatcher Leo T, a Sundance Film Festival update, and some news about the Gender Revolution Conference. But let's get started where we always start with some fresh and homegrown music. The band tonight is No Shooting Friends Joseph, and let's get started with them. Hey, No Shooting Friends Joseph, how are you? Hello. All right, let's hear from each of you your names and what you play, starting with Liz. My name is Liz Aponte, and I play drums. My name is Dallin Serva. I play guitar and sing. I'm Jacqueline Serva, and I play bass, and I sing. And I'm Jameson Serva, and I play guitar and sing. Now, Jameson's the cousin, and Dallin and Jacqueline are husband and wife, just to make sure that's all clear for everybody. But I'm kind of interested in the Unbreakable reference. Wow, that's obscure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bruce Willis has superpowers, as folks may remember, and doesn't quite believe it. And his son's going to use a gun to shoot him to prove that he does. Of course, Bruce Willis utters the infamous line. No shooting first, Joseph. Wow. It's it's a kid's mom. It's the kid's mom who who utters the line. Thank you for that uh, film clarification there. (laughs) Classic cinema. (laughs) Spoiler alert on the band. But you came together through the pandemic. Dallin, you were just kind of noodling, I guess. Yeah, I've played guitar and just messed around for a long time. I played in bands growing up, but I hadn't really done music seriously. And 
the pandemic was in full force. I was, I don't know whether I was about to get laid off or I had just gotten laid off, but either way it was coming. And um, I, I really was just kind of having fun writing music and taking some guitar parts that I had written in the past and trying to make songs out of them. I always say my intention wasn't really to start a band. I was just sort of making music. And then Jacqueline was, we shared an office. And so she was kind of like overhearing what I was doing and sort of started collaborating and getting involved as well. And then all of a sudden we turned it into an actual band. Yeah. So So we're going to hear some of those songs that came out of this experiment of quarantine. What's this first one? Tell us about it and uh, let's hear it. So I think the first one is Pretend and Pretend is a song that that one's not really an older one that I had written before. It's one that I wrote just kind of when I had started doing this. And um, I think, I mean, thematically, it talks about a lot of, you know, frustrations with like where you're living and limitations with where you're living, um, you know, whether those be political or just, you know, things in the social climate or whatever. Um, and then we also used a few film clips from the movie uh, Night of the Living Dead, which is in the public domain. So you'll hear those as well. Fresh and homegrown, no shooting friends, Joseph. The song is Pretend right here on KRCL 90.9 FM.
Lean on Utah seeks new or gently used metal crutches, canes, walkers, and non-motorized wheelchairs. If you don't need it anymore, dust it off and donate it November 13th. More details on the Connect page of krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Mobile Moon Co-op, a female and queer collective and mobile apothecary offering handcrafted herbal products, teas, and cultural events and workshops. More information at mobilemooncoop.org or on social media platforms at mobilemooncoop. Many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look around after the old sundown. Look up in the south and southwest. Friday and Saturday, Jupiter and its moon, Saturn and its rings. Our moon and bright Venus form a long, ragged line from our upper left to our lower right. It's a sight to behold, a lineup of planets and moons. Then later, dazzling Orion peeks its head up above the horizon and rises in the southeast above the ocean swells, the pine-covered mountains, and the red swells of Wingate Sandstone, where the ethereal Orion Nebula resides. It's on the lower end of the Orion complex. Thousands of stars are forming in the cloud of dust and gas. It's a mere 1,300 light-years away. Binoculars help you see details, even from your kitchen window. It's kind of puffy and cloudy looking. And as you probably know, some major sun flares fired up at the end of October, igniting power outages and the shifting, changing aurora borealis stretching across the earth from Canada and Alaska to Iceland, Norway, and Scotland to the upper peninsula of Michigan. You know, picture the hand when people from Michigan tell you where, well, anyway. And as far south as Pennsylvania and Iowa, the eerie dancing glow of green, red, and even purple ions from Earth's upper atmosphere interacting with charged particles from the sun. As we take the little Skywatcher spaceship out to Mars, where the little space helicopter Ingenuity has completed its 14th mini-flight, and will prepare for its next adventure with the Perseverance rover. Look for a neat map from JPL of Perseverance's road trip on the Skywatcher Facebook page. The map shows where it has gone, as well as where it's heading on its next science mission. The goal is reaching Jezero's River Delta again. That's where it started. More geological finds and evidence of flowing water on one of our favorite neighbors. You know, there's lots of evidence that water was on Mars. Stay tuned for new discoveries. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. Let's visit Polynesia, native of more than a thousand islands scattered over the central and southern Pacific Ocean. Polynesian navigators memorized the position of the stars. And these explorers charted paths across the South Pacific to Hawaii and the coast of South America using ocean swells that are produced over hundreds of thousands of miles. The navigator would take a look at where the waves are coming from and use the waves to calculate where their tiny craft is on the ocean. Just visualize being in a small boat in the middle of an enormous ocean under a star-filled night and navigating to an unseen destination. Keep your head up, look around, get lost in space and on the ocean. Skywatcher Leo T. And that is Skywatcher Leo T with another report. Many cultures, one sky. Check tonight's show notes for a link to his Facebook page and get caught up with the Skywatcher. Hey, Al, I've got a couple of things I wanted people to know about. First up, for all you DIY filmmakers and film lovers, Sundance Film Festival 2022 is upping its game for locals. And to find out more, let's pass that microphone. 
Hi, this is Betsy Wallace. I'm the Managing Director for Sundance Institute. We're so excited to be on air today. And I am loving what you're going to do for locals. In fact, it's something called the Local Lens Program. What is this about, Betsy? Local Lens is really a way for us to redesign and to reemphasize and to simplify. You know, last time we were here in person was two years ago. And uh, last year, as we all know, we had to pivot to go online. But now we're coming back. And we're really addressing a hybrid festival, meaning that we're going to be online and in person. So we want to make sure that our local lens really sort of covers both sides of that and and really provides the ability for people to engage at the level they want to engage, to experience what they may want to experience while really trying to manage their own health and safety that they feel uh, is important. So that's what Local Lens is about. We're trying to make sure you can um, see things free. You can get discounted tickets. There's so many different attributes to this that it's just a wonderful redesign and uh, truly a simplification of what we used to have. We will put links in the show notes for folks to check this out, but you got to sign up. It doesn't require you or cost you anything to sign up rather, um, but to be eligible to pick up those tickets at no cost, you got to register and get yourself an account, right? That's exactly right. So go on to uh, sundance.org, work your way to the festival and set yourself up an account. And there will be a way to, you know, participate into public sales if should you wish to um, get that uh, avenue but there'll be some free screenings that will be our, uh, defined within the um, within our website. There's so much information. It's just really exciting to be back, to be honest. And just because I want to get it on everyone's radar in advance, the lineup gets announced in December, correct? It does. Early December, we uh, we announce, and we're super excited. And um, and then our first sale is going to be for our packages which goes live on the um, the 17th for public. So December, December 17th, 17th okay. and that's when you go, we go live with our packages. Well, Radioactive team, really excited for this year's festival and being able to use films as a jumping off point for conversations. And after all, that is one of the huge goals of Sundance, right? It really is. And it's always about the communication. It's always about the community. It's about meeting film um, filmmakers throughout town, throughout Salt Lake, up here in Park City, over at the Sundance Mountain Resort, and online. You know, we're doing Q&As like we normally do in person, but we're also doing them online. And uh, there's just, it's it really is a wonderful way to talk about a dialogue. And I've got to say, the one thing I'm so excited about uh, the film festival being here in, in Utah, there's so many different reasons to be excited, but one is that this is really when those voices start. You know, they start in January, the films come and uh, some of the voices and some of the um, the uh, dialogue is is difficult, difficult dialogue or entertaining dialogue or educational dialogue, but it starts here in January. And that that voice goes on for weeks, months, years. And I'm it is what you said, a community and it allows for communication to start. Betsy, what's the website where people can learn more? www.sundance.org. Thanks, Betsy. Thank you. And that's Betsy Wallace of the Sundance Film Festival coming up in January. We'll put a link in tonight's show notes for the Local Lens program. Just one more event here, Al, in Rallies and Resources. With the theme, We Will Not Be Silent, the 2021 Gender Evolution Conference is happening on Saturday. To find out more, let's pass that microphone. Hi, I'm Stacey Jackson-Roberts. I'm the new CEO of the Utah Pride Center, and I use she, her pronouns. 
And I'm Amanda Darrow, and I'm the Director of Youth, Family, and Education at the Utah Pride Center, and I use she, her pronouns. Now, Amanda, I understand the history of this conference goes back to 2009 and the group Transaction. What are the details in terms of signing up for this? It's virtual, correct? It is. It's completely virtual, and it's this Saturday from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. We have uh, signups at utahpridecenter.org. The tickets can be uh, anywhere from $15 to $30, and we offer scholarships. Stacy, some of the highlights that you're looking forward to, I understand you have some pretty amazing speakers, 20-plus. Yeah, I think that we have really some phenomenal speakers, including... Um, Gavin Grimm, who won the the big school uh, board case back in Virginia um, around restroom access. Uh, so uh, the Fourth Circuit did, and it did go up to this, the Supreme Court, did rule that transgender individuals are able to access restrooms and locker rooms based on their gender identity. So he's going to be one of our, our keynote speakers, along with a variety of other folks. New to the job as CEO, not new to this conversation, given your own life story. Is this conference gaining an importance or does what we're going through just mean, yeah, we need to have these conversations more often. We need to create spaces more regularly for folks who can uh, share their story as well as a space for folks to get educated about the issues. I think it's really critical um, that we continue to have these conversations and expand them. I really see a bright future for this conference as, you know, people are really are starting to kind of explore gender and sexuality. And, you know, we're, we're seeing with Gen Z a lot more people identifying within the LGBTQ community and, and across the gender spectrum and it's not so binary anymore. So I think having this space to really help forge more and greater understanding. And one of the things that we're going to be doing here at the Pride Center is really redevelop one of the positions that's, that we're advertising and part of that position so it's the, our director of uh, suicide prevention and we're going to add a community education component to that and build out continuing education programs for uh, mental health and medical providers to make sure that people can access the care that they need and have understanding providers. We're going into the holidays and I'm always mindful of folks who don't have family to celebrate with and the trans community often falls into that category. What's your message to folks out there who may feel alone? That you have community here. Um, We love you. We support you. And we hope that in the new year, you'll come back and see the re-envisioned Pride Center. We're going to be relaunching on January 7th with a community event. Uh, And so uh, there's a lot in the the works that we're planning here and getting into shape. Uh, Really excited about those details that will be forthcoming. But mark your calendars, January 7th. We're going to be welcoming you home. Stacy, putting your stamp as CEO on this organization, coming out strong. I guess that was a, a, a loaded phrase there. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have some fun, right? So, yeah. uh, Amanda, um, let's talk about, again, the conference on Saturday, 9 to 6, online. Tickets still available. Where can folks get them and also appeal for a scholarship? Yeah, so if you go to utahpridecenter.org, you'll find information about the conference. You can also find it on our Facebook page. Find us at Utah Pride Center. And um, to get scholarships, we're just having folks email genderevolution at utahpridecenter.org. And we're making sure anyone that has any need to be at this conference is able to come. Thank you so much for giving us some time, Stacey and Amanda. I appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Amanda Darrow and Stacey Jackson Roberts of the Utah Pride Center. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the Gender Evolution Conference. And now, Al, time to hear from an old friend of Radioactives. And now to close rallies and resources, we have an old friend with us, Sean Peterson. Hey, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Sean. Really good. How's life with the Association of Gleaning Organizations since you left Green Urban Lunchbox and started that group up? It's been really good. Thanks for thanks for asking. How have you guys been? Doing well, doing well. Good growing season. Al, how many pounds of tomatoes? Oh, uh, 300 plus. Woo-hoo. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of salsa. <laughs> yeah. And put up a lot of tomato sauce, let's say. A lot. <laughs> Al did some of his own gleaning because other folks were like, yeah, you can come over and pick some stuff up. Remind folks what gleaning is, Sean. So gleaning is an ancient practice, and it's harvesting unused fruit. So it could be, you know, tomatoes from your neighbor's garden or cucumbers from a farmer's field or apples from a tree. This started as, a, as something that that Green Urban Lunchbox did and on a local scale. But this is what you're doing now is you've taken it and really run with it. And you're national and there's hundreds of organizations like the Green Urban Lunchbox, that kind of needs some direction and some pooling together. And there's a census that you did, and it has a lot of information in it. Boy, oh boy, it's like 60 pages, that, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Tell us a little bit about the research and getting this thing going nationally. Yeah, so when we took over the fruit share program from the city at Green Urban Lunchbox, we really started exploring what's going on in the national space in the gleaning world. And and it was a really fractured space. Um, And so when I began to look at what I was going to do next after I left the Green Urban Lunchbox, I really wanted to create a movement around gleaning. And so you're right, Al, I I spent the last... uh, almost two years talking to gleaning organizations all over North America, you know, and, and well over a hundred organizations participated in this report. And it really was a chance to look at what gleaning needed, what its strengths were, and what it would take for gleaning to, to really become a national movement and, you know, play its part in reducing climate change and hunger and, and all sorts of um, issues like that. The, the number is staggering. Uh, 10 billion pounds 10 billion pounds of produce gets wasted and we have hungry folks out there at at least you know and and you know if we're talking about climate and climate change the effect of growing food that no one eats has tremendous climate impact so project drawdown um did a, release some research recently that said reducing food waste would have the same effect on climate change as offshore wind power or utility scale solar. And so when you think about that, like food waste, not only are people going hungry and not having access to, you know, great fresh tomatoes, but they, this is a huge contributor to our warming climate. So what are your recommendations out of this report that small organizations like the ones here in Utah from Backyard Garden Share, which now has a new home, of course, um, to large ones that are national in scope and connecting restaurants and growers with ways to get that food to people who need it? Yeah, so our, our big focus is it's sort of twofold. One is to get policymakers to understand the importance of gleaning with this report, but two is to get funders to, to step into the space. If we, you know, our friends over at refed did a study and they said that, 
you know, if gleaning is going to reach its potential and, and harvest, you know, 9% of the food that's left on farms, which is a small fraction, that it needs $47 more million every year in funding. And so, you know, our this report's going out to funders as we speak, and we're having conversations with funders because these programs need to be bigger. They need to be better resourced. Resourced? Yeah, there we go. That's the word. Um, and they, they need... They need support. They need volunteers and they need funding. We, It's a huge task. I'm looking at your report and you say that most of these cleaning organizations are, are pretty small and may have an annual budget of under $800. So this $47 million, we're talking, that's a huge scale, scale up for it, gleaning. It is like something uh, around $13 million spent on gleaning annually right now. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're talking about quadrupling the the amount of resources that ends up in that space and and you know we're we're up against the clock refed's goal is to reduce food waste in half by by um by 2030 and so we've got nine years and that's also the biden administration's goal um and a whole bunch of other government agencies and that's the other thing that makes our work so important is connecting these organizations to people who are doing the work really well you know, acting as mentors, you know, my, my colleagues over at the Green Urban Lunchbox spent time last year mentoring organizations in other states that were growing their program. There's not just uh, fruit growing on trees out in general population. You're talking about farms that are wasting food and that because maybe it's not perfect or maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't look great on the shelf in a grocery store. There's crazy reasons for this stuff. Yeah, so I had a chance um, last year to help uh, glean cucumbers from a cucumber field. And the truck comes through, you know, picks all the cucumbers, and they're all pickle-sized. And they, the pickle size go in the pickles, and everything else just gets tossed and left in the field. because And they're, they're perfect cucumbers. These are solid cucumbers, right? The size that you would cut and put on your salad, but they weren't pickle-sized, and so they... Sean, how can people support the Association of Gleaning Organizations, but also the gleaning groups in their own community? Well, go on our website, gleaningorgs.com, and and look up the the work that a gleaner is doing. Read this report. Find a gleaner. Go out and volunteer with them. Make a donation. Um, Donate your food if you're a farmer or if you have a surplus of tomatoes in your yard or or apples on your tree and get out there and, and help that work move forward. Feed people and save the world. What more could you want to do? <laughs> That's exactly. right. Hey, thanks, Sean. Take care. We'll talk soon. Yeah, I can't wait. Take care, Sean. It's good to see you. All right, for sure. I lied. We have one more to wrap up rallies and resources before we get to your urban farm report with the guy who, you know, paddled around the Great Salt Lake in his handmade canoe. That's all coming up, Al. But tomorrow is opening day of winter market for the downtown Salt Lake City Farmers Market. Al, introduce our next guest. Allison Enerson is with us from the Downtown Alliance. Allison, it just keeps going and it and it's wonderful and we get to eat local food and products and source stuff from our local farmers all winter long. It's happening. That is correct. Um, we had a little bit of a hiccup this year, so we're launching in Pioneer Park tomorrow um, at 10 a.m., so everybody come down. The weather's going to be beautiful. It's beautiful outside right now. It's going to be even a little bit warmer tomorrow. So really perfect market weather. Um, so we'll kick off in Pioneer Park and then we'll move over to the Gateway in subsequent weeks. But 
Yeah, like you said, tons of it's it's kind of the theme is really everything you need to set your Thanksgiving table. So you can still order a fresh turkey from Old Home Place. Um, there's eggs, pumpkin, potatoes, onions. Some people will still probably have some lingering peppers. Um, so there's going to be a ton of, of produce tomorrow. Lots of lettuce, living lettuce. We've got a couple new farms coming on board. So um, good living lettuce, lots of greens, lots of kale. It's going to be great. Is the mayor going to be there to kick off a local uh, local initiative? Um, choose SLC. That is correct. Yeah, this is an initiative um, handed down by Mayor Mendenhall. Um, really just getting people to focus on what they can do in their immediate communities to support uh, Salt Lake City's economy. So we're just inviting you to choose SLC, whether it's, you know, art and craft vendors, which we will have uh, peppered out throughout the market all season, well, most of the season long, um, or whether it's just committing to buying, you know, a local turkey or local potatoes or whatever it might be. You can really have a dramatic impact on the local economy when you keep your dollars in the local economy. And that is what you do there is just choose products made, produced, grown in Salt Lake City and in the surrounding uh, area. And boy, you can do that at the downtown farmer's market. Winter market starting tomorrow. We were just talking with Sean Peterson of the American, excuse me, the Association of Gleaning Organizations. And the market always engages in gleaning to capture produce that would otherwise go to waste, right? That's true. We work with our partners, Wasteless Solutions. Um, Dana has been great. So if farmers have, you know, stuff they know they're not going to be able to turn into a, a secondary value added product or if they just, you know, don't have a venue to sell it, they can donate that through Wasteless Solutions. It goes to a couple of different locations. It goes to Catholic Community Services and Hildegard's Pantry, I believe. So um, really keeping food out of the landfill and making sure that all the food that we grow and produce here gets used. Um, in one way or another. And of course, Wasteless is the new home of Backyard Garden Share, which we had on the show, oh, sometime in the last couple months talking about that, Al. Yeah, it was great. Um, Our friend Pat Thomas used to run that organization and then they changed over. And uh, they're still out there. They're still doing the work and, you know, more and more food coming in, more, more wasted food going out. You can't, you gotta love it. Tell us date, time, place again, Allison. We are starting tomorrow, Pioneer Park, 350 West, 300 South. We open at 10 and close at 2. So come get a coffee and then do all of your shopping. And then um, on the 20th of November, we'll move over to the Gateway. We'll move indoors as the weather gets colder. So all that information can be found on our website, which is slcfarmersmarket.org. And I hope to see everyone there. It's going to be a really great market. I'll, I'll see you there, and I'm, I'm happy to be there to see all the farmers and everybody and uh, support local business and farms. You've got to do it. Choose SLC. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. And of see course, you tomorrow. And let's get a song from our featured band tonight, Al. Fresh and Homegrown. This is Excuses by No Shooting Friends Joseph, right here on Cares Yell 90.9 FM.
And that is Excuses from our featured band tonight, No Shooting Friends, Joseph. Check tonight's show notes for a link to download their music and catch up with them live. Welcome back to Radioactive. It's Punk Rock Farmer Friday, and I'm Laura Jones. Al Dynstrick and I, KRCL's Punk Rock Farmer, is here, too. We've got an interesting urban farm report to share with you now, a conversation we recorded a couple weeks back before Radiothon, and what prompted it was a Salt Lake Tribune article titled, Two Men Paddled Across the fringes of Great Salt Lake to document its decline. And we spoke with the lead on this project. Yes, here we go. Our conversation with Scott Baxter, who circumnavigated the Great Salt Lake earlier this summer. A thing of beauty, because what I remember, Al, about the Great Salt Lake is going out on field trips as a kid and how smelly it was there at the Great Salt Air. (laughs) (laughs) That's a typical response, I think, for most people on the Wasatch Front. Tell us who you are, man. What What's your background and why did you decide to get into a kayak, which I believe you made? Yeah, I do design and build kayaks in the middle of a desert. Not not a typical hobby in Utah. But, um, so so I, um, I've been involved in the Great Salt Lake for probably 30 years now, working with various groups on the Great Salt Lake, all on a volunteer status, but been involved in the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival pretty extensively got involved with linking partners or a group that Don Paul put together, which initially started out as the scientists that basically work along the flyway all the way from Canada down to South America, but especially from Canada into Mexico. Uh, ideas that if we lose one link in this migratory path, we lose it all. And that evolved and including universities and including communities and politicians and, and a pretty broad group and tourism. So, um, and then I've worked with the various agencies out there a lot. I, I do paddle on the lake frequently. I take a lot of pictures and I share those images with the researchers, the state ag- agencies, and allow them to use those as they see fit in, in their reports on the lake and, and their promoting of the lake. Scott, you were, you were out there for six days um, and the lake's really vulnerable, vulnerable right now. Um, can you explain that, what, what the process has been? Yeah, in fact, I wasn't ready to see what I saw when I went out this time. Um, I, I'm generally on the lake real frequently. This year, um, I was in the, the wetlands quite a bit early in the year, but the summer was so hot and smoky, I really didn't get out on the lake much. And there, there's a key life structure, a living rock that lives in, in the lake. It's um, generic term for it is a microbialite. And, and they live in this lake. They, they were typical on Earth before advanced life forms lived on Earth. They live in very hostile environments. And, and the lake is a, a very, very difficult environment to live in. And, and, and they're key to the food chain. So, so these rocks are basically a cyanobacteria algae that, that grow in the water on semi-solid structures. They can't grow on the finer sediments in, in the lake. So there's only specific places that they grow, but they grow and as part of their metabolism process and part of their life process, calcium carbonate precipitates out of the lake into these mats and and eventually they become rock mounds essentially, living rocks. And and that's the basis for the food chain in the lake to a very large degree. The brine shrimp 
they lay their eggs on those, the, the larvae hatch out and, and they, they graze off of those mounds. And that's what feeds the 10 million birds that come to the lake each spring and fall. Um, brine shrimp also are in the lake and an important food source for, for the birds. Um, they're not as dependent. They, they eat more of the free floating algaes and whatnot in the lake. So they're not quite as dependent as the brine fly, but the brine fly is very dependent on these mounds. And, and you know, a few years ago, the lake dropped enough that we we're starting to see some on the surface. In a way that was kind of exciting. For years, I've paddled over these structures and looked down at them. And it, it was kind of neat to be able to just wade around and look at them. But then the lake continued to recede. And, um, and these grow in a pretty defined area on the lake. They have to be deep enough in the water not to get exposed to the air, but close enough to the surface to get sunlight because they need sunlight. Photosynthesis is the, the, the energy source that makes it all happen. And um, as the lake dropped more, you know, there was a lot of concern. And, and a lot of us have seen this for years. Um, you know, it's probably been 15 years ago that I told myself, this lake's going to hit a record low. And when it does, I'm going to circumnavigate the lake in my kayak and, and experience this. So, so it wasn't a surprise to a lot of people that spent a lot of time on the lake. This year, a tremendous amount came out of the water over the summer. And, you know, we'd come in for a landing. We didn't land that often, to tell you the truth. The lake, especially on the west side, it's pretty gradual. And you're out a mile or more to, <laughs> to be in three or four feet of water out there. Um, and, and you need about three or four feet of depth for the kayaks to paddle efficiently. And if you add these microbialites to that, they can poke up a foot or two pretty easily. So, so you can be out there sometimes three miles, but we'd come in and and, and you'd see these, these forms for miles above ground. And, and when, when they surface, they, they die pretty readily. You know, the ones that were at the edge of the lake that were still getting wave splash and stuff were alive. But, um, but, but there were a lot of them. Our first stop, so we started um, on the south end of the lake at the marina and um, near the, the tall smokestack for Kennecott for a landmark for people that aren't familiar <laughs> with that area. And we paddled up to a spit called Erdley Spit. And Erdley Spit's just, it's really neat. If you look on Google Earth, you'll see this just line. It looks man-made coming out into the, the lake on the south side from the west, west side of the lake. And it's actually a fault line. And, and so it's about a six-mile crossing from the marina to get to that fault line. And, and from a large distance, we see a really irregular shore, shoreline, and I've never seen that on Earthly Spit. It's usually just elytic sand and a pretty smooth shoreline, and, and it was these microbialites that had surfaced. And the ones, the side we approached from, um, were the ones that were a little bit lower in the water, so they just surfaced recently. And there were a lot of, a lot of birds sitting on them, using them kind of for protection because, you know, they're little islands out in the lake, kind of. But um, when we got around the other side, we could see for well over a mile, ones that have been exposed perhaps a year, maybe maybe a little bit more, and, and they're just completely dead. They're just yellow and dead. And it, it's like looking over a military graveyard. <laughs> it was unbelievable to sight. And we just saw that more and more and more. We were still paddling over these. Um, so th there are a lot of names for microbialites and most of them have to do with a specific growth. 
the ones in the Great Salt Lake are all, to my understanding, basically the same type of structure. They do take on different shapes, and I think those shapes come from their environment around them. So the ones that are they're closest to the surface tend to be more lumpy and more formed and kind of more interesting to look at. And I think that's because of wave action that's acted on those for you know hundreds of years. Um, down deeper, they tend to be more like mats and they'll come up maybe six or eight inches, but they're more like a big broad mat. And um, the lumpy ones were to a large degree out of the water. They're my favorite ones. I think most people would relate to them more because they just have a personality to them. But, um, but the large mats, we're still seeing a lot of those well under the water. But, um, but right now, if we, if we lose as much water out of that lake next year as we did this year, we'll be going beyond the prime growth range for those, those structures and going into where the growth tapers off on them. So we're, we're, we're in a situation that could get pretty serious within a few years if we continue to see this kind of water drop. The article in the Tribune by Leah Larson, you talked about how there really are no more islands out there in the Great Salt Lake because the water has dropped so low. But it's also noted who you took with you because this isn't something you want to go out and do alone given the weather that can come up on the Great Salt Lake and, and all that. So you took someone with you and I just wanted to do a shout out to your partner there. Okay, yeah. So, so you're right. The Great Salt Lake is a, a body of water you really want to take pretty seriously. You can get serious weather events out there, and it, it, it's not a hospitable place to be to begin with. But but actually, I ended up um, taking my daughter's boyfriend with me. That's a real <laughs> test. That's a real test. <laughs> His name is Matt Kahobka. Well, and Al, they camped on the lake during these six days, and that required some special permission too, right, Scott? Yeah, yeah. So the 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 lake, the the meander line and land under the lake is sovereign land, which is pretty typical in most states. And um, and so, and actually, fairly recent. It's been in our lifetime. I think it was in the mid '70s when it was finally determined to be sovereign land in Utah. But it is sovereign land and um, controlled by the state forestry department, and it's not typically open for overnight recreation. You know, you can go out there for daytime recreation. And, and, and there are concerns because it is a serious lake. You know, there, there, there's not only concerns that they don't have the manpower or the setup to really manage a lot of that type of activity, but there's concerns for people's safety also. And, um, and there, there are a lot of concerns. So, so I approached the the Department of Forestry and with my proposal, and they wouldn't have approved it if it was a recreational trip, just to go out there and say, we did this. Um, the whole intent of the trip was to photograph what we were seeing, share those photographs with the agencies, the advocacy groups that work on the Great Salt Lake, give them a means to document the status of the lake currently and to start that conversation with the public so they can be more aware of what's going on. And they were very supportive. They, they helped a lot. Every, every agency, every, um, every industry on the lake, all the advocacy groups, they were all tremendously supportive of the trip. None of them wanted to go, but they were supportive <laughs> of getting us out there. What can we expect? What, what's going to happen if this lake does a full collapse, Scott? You know, nobody really knows that, but that's, that's an excellent question. You know, you know, how fast can these microbialites grow again if the water comes up 
we, we don't know the answer, but but we have a pretty good idea. <laughs> and it's not a pretty picture. So so the, the, the lake um, itself is critical. It's considered of hemispheric importance for birds. So we've got 10 million birds that, that rely on the lake. So for example, the eared grebe, they're the dominant bird that's out there right now. There's about four and a half million of those in the world. And right now on the Great Salt Lake, there's about four and a half million, pretty much the entire population of that bird in the world. They come here, um, they're the last, last one to migrate through in the fall, going south, and they'll double their weight eating the brine shrimp out there. And then they'll do a nonstop flight down into Southern, Southern California, Mexico in that area. They're not one of the long, long flyers, but it's still a pretty good flight. So it, it would wipe them out. It would be hard on birds, but it goes well, well beyond that. When you look at our ski industry, um, we get a lot of lake effect snow that helps the ski industry. I think the estimates are like six weeks of additional skiing because of that. So it's going to impact the ski industry. Then when you look at what's in that lake, we've got all these minerals that have been dissolved over the years that came in in the streams. And because there is no outlet, they, all those minerals stay in the lake. And then we have everything we've put into the lake. So there's a lot of mining that's happened in the area and that's gone downstream and ended up in the lake with some heavy metals. Um, the treated sewage from a good share of the Wasatch Front ends up in the lake. And, you know, that's very, fairly recent because that sewage wasn't treated until the late 50s. <laughs> so, and, and that's where a lot of the smell that you smell if you, <laughs> if you go by Farmington Bay, that, that's where a lot of that's coming from. So, so you've got all these heavy metals, um, you know, the, and the lakes in Strata, the water that we see when we go out there, um, once you get out in the lake, it's just a beautiful brine water, it has a beautiful brine smell to it, actually. But if you were to go down 15 feet and take a sample out of the water, it would be a really heavy yellow color and it'd smell really bad. <laughs> and that's all down there. So if that lake really starts to dry up, that stuff becomes part of the dust and the dust storms that come into the, into the cities. The health effects of that could be just unimaginable if that starts to blow into our city. So there, there's a lot of concerns on a lot of levels what would happen. And the lake itself is an incredible industry. It brings a lot of money into the lake to, or into the valley. The, the, the brine shrimp harvesting, the mineral harvesting, those are all tremendously important industries for our economy. So there, there's a lot going on there. Talk about the salt, because there are some great photos that you supplied to the Tribune. <laughs> You're going to have to send us a couple to put in our show post. But there's one in particular about these pyramidal structures floating on the water of the salt. Talk about that. Yeah, so, so the lake's actually segmented by, by two causeways. One causeway that goes out to Antelope Island and, and segments out part of the lake. And then the other one's the railroad causeway that cuts across just north of the middle of the lake. And it, it goes from basically 12th Street of Ogden over to Promontory Point and then over to the west side of the lake. And when they put that causeway in, there used to be a trestle there. And the trestle would let water pass through. But when they put the causeway in in the late 50s, the Earthville Causeway, it basically made two lakes there. And they do have one breach currently. They used to have a couple breaches. They've tried a few things over the years, but they have one breach that allows a little bit of mixing. But the north end of the lake has no inlets. There's no fresh water that comes into it other than what goes through the small breach and what, what can filter through the Earthville Causeway. 
So it, it's extremely saline. It's just over 27% salt up there, which is full saturation. So when you paddle up there, salt forms on everything, on your paddle, on your kayak, <laughs> all, over your, all over your body, all over your spray skirt, PFD. Things quit working, you know, things like zippers and knots and Velcro that we, buckles that we take for granted, they get clogged with salt, they quit working. But you were out there for six days. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah, it was was an interesting experience. You just come to peace with living in salt. You sit in it, you lay in it, you you fix your dinner in it. But um, these salt crystals you mentioned, they're on the north end where it's fully saturated. And, And they form inside, so there's a lot of natural sea foam on that lake. The, the algae cyanobacteria that lives in the lake creates a natural soap essentially. So when the wind blows, you get foam. And, and on the north side, especially, you see little islands of foam, maybe the size of your hand or even smaller. And, and these salt crystals form within that foam. I think the foam gives it a barrier from the water so they don't get broken up because they're really, when you pull them out, you break them more often. But we were able to get a few, <laughs> get a picture of a few of them. And they're like an upside down pyramid. They're a beautiful structure and they just, you know, they're hollow. So you're looking down into them from the top, uh, from the water surface, but they just grow in those in those areas. And, and a lot of the salt you see up there there used to be microbialites up there, but you know when we put a put that causeway through, it dammed off. I think just over thirty percent of the lake, and all those lumps and mounds that you see that salt crystals are growing on used to be live microbialites. So, you know by by late sixties we we'd killed a lot of that structure just by the salinity increase on that side of the lake. But yeah, those those crystals, um, they're called hooper crystals or what they're called. And they came out at an important time for us. We were paddling hard and wore out. Our boats weren't moving very fast. We were making less than two and a half miles an hour, really wore down. And then we came through just a whole bunch of those. And it, you know, it kind of picked our spirits up again. Later that day, we found out what was going on. We actually had a lot of salt forming on the bottom of our kayaks. And we took a cord and each got on the side of the boat and we'd saw it back and forth and we sawed off all that salt crystals. And we went from two and a half miles an hour to four and a half miles an hour with half the effort. It was amazing. So (laughs) it's a different environment to be in. It's very salty up there. Al, you're always talking about the connection in our, you know, our agrid and food. And I'm just thinking about the connections that the lake is so primary to and what might happen. I mean, this fits perfectly with the Urban Farm Report. Um, what are your concerns, Scott, um, as this lake level continues to drop for its ripple effect off of this migratory flyway? You, you know, Owen Lake, um, you know, the famous lake that was drained to, to, to give Los Angeles water is a good example. There are saline lakes all around the world, um, many of them in worse shape than the Great Salt Lake. Um, and, and these... These, these saline, saline lakes that are our terminal lakes, um, you know, it's really tempting to, to take water from them and to use it for something beneficial. And Utah state law has that beneficial use law on, on water and letting it go into the Great Salt Lake isn't a beneficial use, unfortunately. And that's not inconsistent with how saline lakes are seen around the world. So, so we do have a lot of examples of what have happened and it, it can be tremendously hard on the population. 
you know, if I look at it from a geological standpoint, the Great Salt Lake has been lower. It's been significantly higher, too. I think most people that live on the Wasatch Front are aware of Lake Bonneville and those high shorelines that you see on their, our mountain sites here. But, um, but it has been lower before. I, I think one way or another, the Great Salt Lake will survive. The question is, will we? I, I think we could create an environment that's very inhospitable here in our cities. And, and you know, the lake was, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was really neat to be out there for six days. It was really difficult mentally and physically, but it was, but you can't survive out there. It is, you know, they, they have, they have names for the organisms and the algaes and stuff that, that grow out there. And, and one of the names is extremalites. It's an extreme environment. I mean, that is what the world looked like before advanced life lived on Earth. And we could be blowing that right into our cities. And that could, it could be severe. And that's Scott Baxter, Laura. I'm going to put some great photos he sent us in the show photo tonight, folks. So be sure to check out the show notes. He says he's working on a book and maybe some conversations. I, I know I've seen him online doing some already. But, man, I don't know if I could, if I could do that. First, got to make the kayak, Al. <laughs> then you got to get out there on the water. But uh, what a great conversation. All right, we have time for one more song. Tell us what's coming up for No Shooting Friends, Joseph, the band... And uh, Dallin, I understand there's new tunes in the works. Yeah, um, I feel like, I, I don't know, it, it's been this crazy thing where I've, I come from the world of filmmaking and in filmmaking, I've been like a producer role. So I've been like supporting other filmmakers. We had a filmmaker space, we were supporting other filmmakers and I just felt like creatively frustrated. So when I wrote the Flickr album, it was such a positive experience where it was like 100% just what I wanted to do. I was able to get my stuff out. I didn't have to check it with anybody. We didn't have to go raise a bunch of money to do it. And as soon as it was done, I immediately started writing album number two. I have since slowed down because I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I feel like I've gotten a lot out of my system. So we have a bunch of new songs. We've started playing a few of them live, but we're kind of in that process still of refining, making sure everybody else in the band has a part of the process of creating their part and so then we're hoping to go in and start recording either the end of this year or beginning of next year we'll be sure to bring it back in the meantime you've got live performances on youtube are you playing out anytime soon Yes, we have a show coming up on December 3rd that we're playing at Quarters in the DLC. Um, I think the bar is like the DLC side and then Quarters is like the arcade side. But I Where is that? That's on Main Street and... Is that 4th? Yeah. Yeah, Main Street and 4th. Downtown. Yeah, so that'll be December 3rd. We'll be playing there. And then that might be the last one we do this year just because we're moving on to recording the new album. But we definitely, we usually try to play about once a month and during the summer that usually go up goes up a little bit so and where can people find your music online pretty much all the places (laughs) we're on spotify we're on apple we've got some stuff on youtube i mean am i missing any big ones yeah Yeah. uh, i think we're even on tiktok you want to put us in your tiktok videos yeah Yeah, follow us on instagram that sort of stuff we post all the time what's your main website where folks can find all that no shooting friends joseph.com Here's one more song. It's called Hearsay by No Shooting Friends, Joseph, fresh and homegrown on KRCL 90.9 FM. Hear that? He was my friend. Your friend? He was like a kid brother. If I could find him and destroy him. But you said he was your friend. When I find him, I'll drive a stake through him just like all the others. 
Charlie, what's your name?